You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. Welcome to Sagas and Sass Season 3. I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts Nick and Jonathan. This episode will cover parts one and two of Arm of the Sphinx, the second installment of Josiah Bancroft's Books of Babel series. If you're watching live, join us in the chat or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sagas and Sass to continue the conversation. And just as a reminder, the views expressed in the show are those of the hosts as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. Well, when we say we're back with Senlin and crew in Arm of the Sphinx, we mean that more literally than you'd think, because as it turns out, after absconding with the stone cloud at the end of Senlin Ascends, they quickly turn to piracy themselves after failing to immediately gain access to Pelphia. But they're pretty half-assed pirates, considering they only take what they need to survive, and it doesn't help that Senlin is still having visions of his missing wife, Maria, and trying to keep it from everyone else while uh, using the ship log as a diary in which he details these visions. So, of course, Edith finds out when she goes to update the ship log, and this happens in conjunction with them getting blacklisted from the pirate port, Windsock, because Valida steals a flying squirrel from a merchant, and then Iron doesn't think twice about throwing said merchant to his death when he threatens Valida. Granted, this last visit of theirs to Windsock at least gives Senlin some information about how he might get into Pelthia. He meets with Madame Bata, who receives information and records everything that goes on in the tower, and tells him about a man named Luke Marat. Marat lives in the Silk Reef, the ringdom above Pelthia, and apparently one can use the Hod's Black Trail to enter Pelthia from the gardens. Senlin deduces that he can steal some books to bring to Marat as a gift in return for his help getting into Pelthia, but things go awry yet again soon after they have gathered the books they need. Seriously, between Edith being more than a little annoyed with Senlin for keeping his Maria visions from her, and the fact that they now don't really have anywhere to go except the mysterious Silk Reef, you'd hope things wouldn't get worse. But of course they do. Valida gets distracted by her squirrel, whose name is Squit and fails to be the proper lookout. They almost fall to the commissioner again and only escapes him and his ship by basically destroying their own. Big oops. Big oops. With the stone cloud sailworthiness almost completely compromised, they limp into the Silk Reef. Adam, Aren, Felita, and the rest of them are supposed to remain with the ship and try to fix it while Simlin and Edith take the books to Marat and ask for his help. Not that Valido obeys, though that does turn out to be for the best. While Adam and Oren piece the ship back together, Valida follows her captain and first mate through the Silk Reef's forest to Marat's headquarters at the Golden Zoo, where they meet with Marat, but don't really like what they see or hear. Marat is handsome and eloquent, but wheelchair-bound, as his legs were replaced by the Sphinx, who he refuses to work for, which means he can no longer get the vials needed to power them. Meanwhile, the Hods he is uh, rescuing seem to be doing well, but Senlin doesn't care for the fact that he will have to become a Hod and agree to help Marat's cause in order to use the Black Trail to get into Pelphia. On top of that, the books Marat is collecting are being destroyed as the Hods work back to front and black out every single line. Thanks, thanks, uh, thankfully, Valida is able to help Senlin and Edith escape, who their visit is not without its consequences. Edith lost all of the vials that power her arm in the fight against the commissioner, and she uses the last of its power during the, their fight with Marat and the Hods. In an uncharacteristic stroke of good luck, though, Aran and Adam have made the stone cloud airworthy once again, at least enough to escape from the silk wreath. But they know they won't last long, and poor Edith is a mess over her now useless arm, so Senlin dons his captain's hat and decides that he will pay a visit to the legendary Sphinx. So much happening uh, in the first part, first two parts of this book. It's not necessarily action-packed per se, at least not up until there. Uh, there's like a couple little, you know, instances when they meet with the commissioner, uh, meet with the commissioner, and then when they're trying to escape from Marat. But it's more. I think the first two parts of this book are more about just kind of a, a lot of world building and mm -hmm. also, you know, introducing random new characters that who knows if we'll ever actually see again. Um, I really enjoyed uh, Madame Bata. 
she is a very interesting, she's a very interesting inclusion. The fact that she lives in a spider web of yarn underneath her son's shop. Mm -hmm. And she's, she's a person, but I, like, I, I just, I don't know how she lives down there. Cause of course, Sendlin goes to meet her and he's struggling through the yarn web trying to get to her. And he sees that there's all these hats that were left behind. And, you know, that means that the people clearly fell to their death, apparently for lying to her. So, but I really love that whole scene because mm -hmm. of what she says to him about history. And I don't know was it clear to you guys? Cause I even reading it, this is, I think the third time I've read this book and even reading it again, I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure how I feel. Is she recording everything that happens in the tower or is it still just select things? Cause I feel it like if she knows like, every single thing that's going on, that's just so much. Yeah, it, it does. It is implied that she knows everything because she mentions things that she has no way theoretic like from a she wasn't there so she doesn't know how it that it happened but she still knows about it the question is how yeah is is it magical does she have a recorder of some type yeah, i don't know that part i definitely don't know I, I mean i agree with nick that she, she she's recording everything but the question becomes how and will we ever learn or is it just a convenient plot device to move the plot forward. Well, and it's also very mm -hmm. interesting that she is, that she's just, you know, she she says it several times, like, I am a recorder, I am a recorder. Like she she doesn't, she she takes down the history, or sorry, she she doesn't, she doesn't like that word. She doesn't like being, she doesn't like oh, the history or historian words. She, she is the recorder of all things that happen in the tower, but she doesn't, she doesn't do anything about it. I mean, it doesn't even sound mm -hmm. like, it doesn't even sound like she, even when crazy things happen, she's not going to get help for people or anything like that. She is literally just marking it on, you know, with her, with her knots and everything. And also it reminded me of, was it, oh my gosh, what was the Davabod trilogy? Was it Davabod trilogy where they record, they were recording things by tying them on lines? Yes. I think so. uh, yeah, it, it just it, it it I was that oh that's a nice little like reminder of a series that we read last season. I, I'm pretty sure it was it was Dave Avon, So <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long. There but there were there yeah. were so many books last season, like 15 books. So yeah, I, I mean and I also loved I, I mean I mentioned that she that Madame Bata hates the word history and historian, and I loved the the passion that she has when she talks about it, you know, Senlin says that he he taught this, 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 and this. And one of the things he says is, is that he taught history. And she asks, which history? And he says, you know, well, you're a historian of sorts. And she vehemently disagrees. Mm -hmm. you know, she says she's a recorder. And I wanted to quote her because it's just such a good, like two pages long passage or back and forth between the two of them. She says, a recorder takes things down. A historian makes things up. A historian begins with an ending and then he concocts a pleasing cause. It's a fairy tale. And Senlin argues there are small omissions, but that the story isn't perverted. It's just clarified. And she is, she insists, of course it's clarified. That's because all of the confusing and muddling and disagreeing parts have been removed. It's clear because it's untrue. Who are the uh, these pious men writing the story of time anyway? To whom are they devoted? Every historian I've ever heard of has a benefactor or a master or a duty to his country. History is a love letter to tyrants written in the blood of the overrun, the forgotten, the expunged. And just considering everything that's going on in the world right now, <laughs> I was like, this this hit, this hit that those couple pages yep. hit a lot harder than they did the first, even two, second time, even the second time I read them, which was like two and a half years ago. But I don't know. I, do you guys think we'll see Madame Bata again? Do you did you or do you think she's just a one-off kind of plot device? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I I don't know why. The only other reason I could think of of keeping of her around is again to get more information. Mm. They just keep stopping in to get more information, which they, they can't do apparently because. What? 
<laughs> which they can't just stop in. They can't stop in there anymore. They can't go to yeah. Windsock anymore. They've been banned from the one port where they were able to rest. I mean, really, yeah. really, as far as I know, they're 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 banned for good. I mean, because that's the thing about Windsock is nobody. It is a pirate port. You know what I mean? It's it's like being banned. What's what's it's like it's like being banned from Tortuga and Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, <laughs> you know, or, once NASA, you, once, or NASA and Black Sails. Yeah, what, what do they call it? Blacks. They call it a black scotch, which is a really. I didn't look up that term to see if there's any historical meaning behind it, and now I feel I feel like I should have because I wasn't. I'm not sure if it's if it's just a reference to liquor, like a. Like the tower uses scotch instead of rum. They don't though, because they steal. I don't know. I I feel like I should have looked up the term black scotch. It's a very weird term to me. It but is. I love. Uh, I I mean, I hate that they got banned from the port. But the whole like how it happens is just this weird little comedy of errors, right? Like Adam mm -hmm. and Iron are just hanging out in the pub, and Belita comes back and is like, "Oh, I stole a squirrel." <laughs> oh, Belita. She's very willful. I love yeah. her. I love how much I mean, more we're seeing of her. Yeah. She's great. I love her little squirrel, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Squit. It reminds me of back in the day for a hot minute when I had, uh, oh, my gosh, not flying squirrels, sugar gliders. What are sugar gliders? They're they're marsupial. They're they're like flying squirrels. They in that they glide like they do, and they look kind of like them, but a little bit smaller and slightly cuter faces. Um but they're they're marsupials. They're an exotic pet, so they're banned in a lot of places. Uh, like if I had them still now, I would be able to. I wouldn't have been able to bring them to California, but I don't think. But um, yeah, they're 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 cute little pets, but they're they supposedly will bond with a person. And I, I mean, to bring it back to Belita, this squirrel apparently is immediately just like her BFF, which is so cute. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, apparently sugar gliders bond with people, but I didn't, I only was fostering mine. I didn't have them long enough to to bond with them. I was basically like getting, I got them from a breeder who was kind of overrun and I kept them for about eight months, maybe I, longer than I expected to. They're, they're cute and everything. And they were, mine were pretty friendly, but um, this, I, this is a total random aside, I know. But like whenever I picture Squit, I know that Squit is a flying squirrel, but I actually picture uh, my sugar gliders, their names are Maya and Tia. Anyway, totally random aside. Despite the fact that Belita's the one that steals the squirrels, Iron that gets them in real trouble, though. Yep. Because she just murders somebody without thinking. She just straight up kills somebody. I mean, did she really mean to just straight up murder him? I think she just, she just kind of threw him not, I don't think she was thinking about what she was doing or where he was going to go. The fact that there's no walls in this pub is just blankets or sheets or whatever they like silk i think it's like silk curtains or something everywhere so she just throws him through the silk curtains you know uh but wow iron iron and Belito, what a pair <laughs> they, they really I don't, are. yeah i don't think she didn't not want to kill him either <laughs> no probably I think, not i think she was just you know angry and frustrated about life and had an opportunity. Well, she's very protective of Valida, so yeah, 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 for sure. Which is an interesting, you know, because Valida used to just be afraid of her, right? Mm -hmm. And now they're like buddy buddy, and also Iron and Adam eventually become buddy buddy. That's 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 in part two, sort of, uh, is when their friendship kicks out. Mm -hmm. I mean, part one is kind of. Other than, I will say the the destruction of the ship mm -hmm. uh, is is certainly a. <laughs> I know that they had no choice, right? Of course they had no yeah. choice. But, oof, twice in a That's row, Holita, twice in a row. <laughs> You're not doing too hot here, girl. <laughs> no, not a good record. I still am like shocked that the they didn't crash the ship entirely. Right. Honestly, yeah. I, I just, yeah. I, I mean, they didn't. They, they escaped the commissioner by the skin of their teeth, and did not crash the ship. And it was that was right after they had gotten the books from the weird. The family, the dad yeah. and the daughter. Yeah, the, yeah. They stole. They stole the book. 
Right. Well, they sold a whole bunch of books. books. But I was trying to remember what their what their airship quote unquote looked like because Zenlin was describing. I had forgotten this, right? I'd forgotten this about the airships that a lot of the people who are tourists, they don't actually have airships. They just make their homes into airships or something. <laughs> it's like this weird sort of houseboat situation, but not quite mm-hmm. that, uh, not quite that houseboaty. I don't know. I, I just, cause the way that one, the way that's, that this guy and his daughter, their, their air, air quote unquote airship is described is that it's like this little, I think it's like a little house, like a little Victorian tea house or something, or English tea house is what I kind of picture. And I could be misremembering the exact description a little bit, but how the hell does that thing fly? How do, how do any of these fly? I don't, I don't care how big well, your envelope how, is. How, how, how do the once every 10 year idiots who strap a bunch of helium balloons to chairs fly? I mean, it, it, it it's not like you have to be, it's not like you have to be aerodynamic if you put a big of, a big enough balloon of air about, or I should say hot gas above you. I wonder if Josiah Bancroft was inspired, let's say by up when he was oh, like maybe. describing these, right. You know, I mean, maybe, yeah. That if I could ask, if I could, I actually have interviewed him twice. I think it was years ago, uh, about Sandlin and Arm of the Sphinx. And I, I think if I could ask him one question now, I would have to, that would be like the first one on my mind. Uh, were you were you inspired by Up when you were describing <laughs> these like floating, you know, tourist houses? <laughs> and they're just going to the tower instead of the, the falls. The, also that guy and his daughter, that was weird though. Yeah, it was. Because is it, Someone does someone call her Edith maybe and like says like thinks she's his wife and he's like ew no that's my daughter but still the whole thing just seems very weird and then the, the, the other there's also that little aside when they're being when they're being attacked by the commissioner's ship with the ornithologist from is he from Pelphia mm-hmm. I think he's from Pelphia and he's like creeping on the maid or whatever she is and you know i don't know that the whole thing is very it seems kind of out of place and unnecessary which i normally don't say about these books but why did we need that perspective like why mm-hmm. did this side i feel like that would be a good like side tail for for an author to put on their website you know what i mean like the the attack mm-hmm. from another from another view sort of thing it just felt a little i don't know what, what do you guys think did it feel out of place to you am i alone in that <laughs> no it felt a little out of place to me too i'll be honest i didn't notice well anyway yes. so they go so i i actually have a question on the strat and what what one of the things that concerned them they didn't want to land because they felt they'd be overrun by the mob. Is that? Did I catch that right? Uh, they yeah. Could, they could, that if they if they landed, they'd be basically overrun by all the tourists, and that, that's why they just couldn't land and try to escape in a huge crowd of hundreds of thousands of people. Well, I think it was also Semlin knew that if they did land, they'd have like little to no control over it. So it would be, it would be a crash landing and they, between that and the fact that yes, they would be kind of overrun by the people in in the skirts or in the marketplace or whatever there, there wouldn't be, it's like maybe they would escape, but then where would they go after that? You know what I mean? Well, I mean, he still has his train ticket as far as I know. (laughs) I think that at this he's not leaving Mario. <laughs> also, they, he specifically said it's only good for a certain amount of time. I, I missed that, which one. is almost certainly passed yeah. at this point. Because that was that was one of the things that came up towards the beginning of the book. He was trying to figure out what to do about Maria. Was that the train tickets would only last for so long? It's like flying Frontier Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someone had the Frontier Airlines ticket, not the first class to first class Delta or Southwest ticket. <laughs> yeah, non-refundable. 
Okay, so they they escape from the commissioner just barely, and next up is like part two is where all the kind of meat of you know the first half of this book really happens because they go to the Silk Gardens or Silk Reef. I, I. I've, it, it, it was called like it, I know that the the part is called the Golden Zoo, which is the center of that ringdom. And I think in the map it's called the Silk Reef, but it's also they also talk about the gardens constantly because it's sort of a garden. There's mm-hmm. these creepy, brittle trees that when you break them, they have no leaves, and when you break them, they're all sharp and weird. I mean, they have no natural light or anything, so it makes sense that they're not you know, trees like we would think of them uh, in a, in a forest or whatever. But so they, they limp in there and land the ship. And uh, it's a lot of back and forth between Senlin and Edith going to Marat and Valida following them and Iron and Adam trying to put the ship back together. And this is when Iron and Adam kind of forge their little friendship. Uh, but yeah, did it, were either of you, because reading it, you know, even reading, rereading it this time, because it had been a while, I, I didn't have like a sense of urgency at really, you know, and you find out later that the ships, the wrecks that are there in the, you know, the, the beach sort of thing uh, at the entrance to the Silk Reef are, have all been picked through, but I didn't feel like any sort of like urgency about that, you know, oh, of course they've been picked through by the people who live here and we should probably be worried about that. Um, it, it really wasn't until it literally it gets told to us later in, yeah. in part two that, you know, they wait until a ship until the people who land the ship have become complacent and then they go after them and, and, you know, steal everything they can. But I wasn't, Oddly, I wasn't feeling that sort of concern when they landed. And maybe it's because as when Madame Bata was describing Marat, you know, she she was very vague, but she wasn't, shouldn't make him sound like he was necessarily super dangerous or whatever. Right. So... I don't know. Did either of you get this like, oh shoot, they're land they're landing here and they shouldn't be feeling or was it just kind of like, oh, they're just gonna they're gonna go get help now because Marat is of course gonna help them because he's a good guy, right? That's what Senlin believes anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean it it struck me as odd that they just kind of didn't pay attention to that. I guess I mean it wasn't they didn't pay attention, it was mostly they they they, they didn't question it. You know, they didn't mm-hmm. question the fact that these ships were all picked clean. Like it, it, at the very least, oh, okay, so somebody somebody cleaned them out, but maybe it was the ship that came before or came after them, or maybe it, yeah, it's very. And I know there's no one there when they land, but still. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I mean, how far they go? Pretty far. Someone and Edith go pretty far into the forest before they do run into that one Hod who is speaking their weird mumbly nonsense language. Hoddish. Yeah. yeah. Which makes sense, obviously, that they made up their own, you know, it's like kids in a school making up their own, or or, or sisters making up their own language so that they can babble about things and the parents or the school teachers won't, you know, understand what they're saying, right? Uh, Keeping their secrets or whatever. Uh, and the Hods live a kind of dangerous life, obviously. So it makes sense that they would have this. But the fact that they speak it even in a place where they're free is interesting. It does. It's odd that uh, they use the language even when there aren't outsiders around. But it seems like they've essentially gotten to a point where they don't really speak anything else. Because even like the few times, aside from Marat, the few times when somebody speaks something other than Hoddish, it's like one sentence and then they go back to to Hoddish. Yeah, they just say it's something, it's like come and be free, I think, or something very similar to yeah. that. And, you know, I, I, 
It's it's so Valida uh, immediately distrusts this guy, this Hod. That you know, she she's she's following. She's left. She she was supposed to stay back with Adam and Iron, and she does her Valida thing. And for once, it actually turns out for the best. But when she's following them, and they run into this Hod, you know, they're kind of just trusting of him. Even Edith seems more trusting than I would expect of her at this point. I think. But, I don't know. She didn't really come across as trusting, though. She was pissed yeah, at him from the beginning. Uh, yeah, maybe trusting isn't the right word. But it's certainly... They just kind of follow him without really questioning it. I mean, even... Even at this point has been has been pissy enough with someone that I think... Wait, but weren't they following him because... Weren't they having issues with the spiders before? Did well, we... yeah, they got. The, I mean, the the spiders ran. It wasn't really the spiders, I guess, that they had to be worried about. Though, of course, I get being freaked out that a billion spiders, you know, are suddenly swarming you. But the spiders were just running. It was the spider eaters that they were that are really the problem. Yep. And I'm still very. That was one of the things I, I you know, wanted to just touch on because. The spiders I get, right? It's a silk reef. They have something to do with the production of the silk, which isn't how silk is produced in real life. But okay, let's say that the spiders produce the silk because that's what it tells <laughs> us. Um, but I get them. I get the spiders. But the spider eaters seem like a lot. You know, why are there yeah. so many of them? And why are they so... I, 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 why do they exist? Wouldn't you want the spiders to kind of just do their thing and also maybe the spider eaters weren't always there but it seems like an odd inclusion in a place that's literally built for lovers trysts you know it does seem odd so you go out to have your little fling in the creepy weird forest you know because there's all these little coves and and Places to hide behind to do the things, and well, I don't think that happened before. I think the the, uh, the spiders and those things, I think, came after, right? I mean, were they there when this was a civilized tourist attraction? I believe so. I so. But they were, yeah, probably... but they probably would have been in a much more controlled environment, right? And and you know, it's been a long time, and so they've been breeding, and there's a ton of spiders, but. If nobody ever goes to the Silk Reef, then why put this like, now? You know what I mean? Right. Like they're they're dangerous to have when it's a tourist attraction. The spider eaters, I mean, and also I would assume that they're control. They, they, I would assume that they are controlling the spiders in a safer way when it's a tourist attraction. Then it's not a tourist attraction, and nobody's supposed to be going there at all, other than the few ships that crash there or whatever. And these spider eaters, so somebody put them there. I get that, but when exactly? Like, have they always been there? Were they also controlled? It just—it's very—it's a very weird. Um, it's just a very weird kind of, and they also feel like a plot device, I guess, just to to get Sinlin and Edith to have to dive into the water, and then the hot, you know, the hog comes upon them, and, and then later when they're trying to escape, they use the spider eaters to help them escape. A spider eater coming up on the ships on the ship, you know, graveyard and attacking iron and, and Adam is what leads to them kind of forming a, a more friendshipy bond than mm -hmm. they had previously, et cetera. But it just, it, it just seems like a lot. The, the, these spider eaters are very, I mean, another, like I said, like another plot device. And I would love to, Maybe eventually we'll get more information on the whys and hows of them. Yeah, I, for I, now, I, they just seem like a really odd, you know, how did they get there and why sort of thing. I, I must admit, I all I saw was gigantic anteaters in my, with sharp claws. And yep. Everything. Well, anteaters have huge claws. I know. Have saying, but claws. but the, for some reason, are more aggressive. <laughs> that's that's what I was thinking, but bigger than and even an anteater. That's they're, they're, editors are pretty big, actually. But uh, just to shove in another mention of a series that we've read, they're like the Bunyips from Temeraire. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a weird 
thing for it's it's probably a weird me thing that I want to know more about why and how these spider readers are there and how they like, exist to the extent they exist. But for now, I guess it's neither here nor there. What they do in in you know Armor the Sinks is further further the plot bit by bit uh, by causing Semlin and Edith to dive into the pond or the the I guess more like a cistern than a pond, and then you know. Again, like I said, they they despite her attacking Iron and Adam leads to them becoming better friends because Adam helps her. And then later Semlin and Edith use the spider ears to escape from the Hods. So it's a lot of it's a lot of plot devicey stuff. But anyway, they're not super important. The really big important thing that happens in the entire first half of this book. I mean, there's some there's some interesting. I, I still love the Madame Bata thing. I really want to know more about that. I hope it comes mm-hmm. back again. She comes back again. But the big the thing, revolution. yeah, we, we learn about the Hod revolution. Uh, there is one more kind of big revelation at the end of part two, but the biggest plot, you know, point in the first half of this book is Luke Marat and his Hods and the blacking out of the books. And I mean, just so it's, it's, it's a lot packed in to really when you think about it, when you break out the parts where Adam and Iron are fixing the ship and everything, it's packed into a, a, a you know, very few pages mm-hmm. where, you know, Edith and, and Senlin meet with Marat and, you know, and, and of course then Valida also from her point of view sees the Hods and that's probably Edith and, and, and Senlin, they don't trust Marat. Senlin is like, this guy is real smooth, but I don't know about him. And then he finds out about the blacking out of the books and he's like, whoa, Teacher vibe, no. So, <laughs> but uh, Belita seeing them, before we dig too deep into Marat himself, because I do want to talk about that, Belita seeing the Hods, the, there's the two Hods that have the third one that they've taken from the Black Trail, and he's got a keg of gunpowder, and they want the gunpowder, and they're trying to, they're like, come and be free, come and be free, and the guy's like, no, man, I got like four months left, I'm, I'm almost done, you know, I, I, the light at the end of the tunnel, I just want to finish out my work, it's not that bad, I just want to get out of here, and they're like, okay, bop him on the back of the head, bury him under the grass, and mm-hmm. Belina is like, how many bodies are buried under here, like, that is so... You know, it's it's it speaks a lot to the so-called revolution, and yep, they're not really out to help all the hods and everything. I, I don't know. Like, did you guys have well, any? I mean, it's like every revolution. You're either with us or you're against us, and therefore, the person who's not with you is against you. So, therefore, you can knock them off. I guess, and also, man, I, maybe that guy's kind of stupid too. I I don't know. We we know I think we know enough about this this, this situation with the Hods, right? Mm-hmm. To know they're indentured servants. So like indentured servants, they're as as much as they work off their bill, there's gonna be stuff constantly added to it, right? No no. Well, yes, depending on where and when and when the indenture, but a lot of indentured some indentured, yeah, that's definitely true. Others were was not. I mean, one of the reasons people came to the United States was to be indentured, and then they eventually settled in the United States. I mean, eventually. so it, it all it it may have been in his case it was reasonable, or he may have been lied to and just believed it because he wanted to believe it. But it's possible it could have gone either way. I mean, I guess I'm erring on the side of Tower bad. All things about Tower bad. <laughs> so. My thought process there is, uh, yeah, they're like I'm. I'm. I'm feeling this is the bad indentured servitude, right? Where well, I would. Can, I would have assumed that too. But where they work and work and work, but like this guy thinking he's going to get out of there in four months, something's going to go wrong. You know, there's no guarantee of that. There really isn't. Something could go wrong. Something probably is going to go wrong. He's going to. It, you know, yeah, he ran into Moret's people. Right, but I mean, even outside of that, like something else would have gone wrong if that didn't, is, mm-hmm. is kind of my thought process. So, but now he's buried under the sod in the Golden Zoo. I, I'm with Belita, man. I'm like, how many people are buried under there? And also, how is that, how, how is it not stinky or anything? <laughs> yeah. That's weird. Even if that only happens once in a while, like let's say once a month, 
That place should reek. There's no way. There's just no way. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, you assume, you assume that the spider eaters don't eat the bodies, too, right? I don't think the spider eaters go into that area. But, I, I mean, I, I, I suppose there could be something like some sort of preservative or something down in there. And they're, they, they've made it so that it can be like a graveyard without it. I don't know, whatever it's, I guess it doesn't matter either way. Yeah. It just was like, Ugh. or maybe I they don't have to, Well, the other possibility is they don't have to kill that many people. True. I mean, Valita, what, how many bodies are there, but it may have been one, this one. <laughs> I would hazard a guess it happens fairly regularly because it's pretty, they have a system. They have a system, man, and they work it pretty quickly when they kill this guy. They're like, bop, pick up the side, yep. throw him in, put it back down. I, I, I yeah. it, it's very, it's too smooth <laughs> for them to, onto, you know, the big important plot things that we learn, uh, mm -hmm. starting with Marat. Thoughts on his, Hod revolution and the blacking out of the books. I, I still wasn't a hundred percent certain why he was black, why one had to do with the other. The Hod revolution part I got, I didn't quite get the whole blocking out of the books. I mean, well, it's to keep them ignorant. Yeah, but the Hods in general aren't ignorant people. Yeah, you have right? to. I mean, I, you have to imagine some of them but, can read and everything. They're not. Yeah, all... that, that's what I'm saying. It's not. It, it, it's the Hods. It, it's one thing to keep people ignorant who were start off ignorant, but the Hods mostly came from, I would say, some set of means that they, and they ran into trouble because they could afford to get to the tower. So there were a lot of educated Hods. So I just don't see. It didn't oh, I mean, Tarot is a perfect example, right? Yeah, and I would. Right, they might have started out that way, but if you spend a significant amount of time being forced to do only that kind of labor, I'm not sure how much of that you retain. You think you forget how to read? Not necessarily forget how to read, but like the other thing is, it. it correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think books are like a plentiful thing in this world. Well, they're not like not good ones anyway. <laughs> Well, not—they're not unplentiful. I mean, Senlin wasn't exactly a wealthy guy. He was a school teacher in a right, small but, uh, little village who was teaching his—you know—the children under him to read. So it's not like they—they they, they yeah, didn't have I, any books at all. I think that that's—I think that using Senlin as an example is not he's not the best example of the world as a whole because he is a teacher, right? I mean, and you, the, the guy that they sealed the books from, you know, also not the best example because he's, I think, a professor is what he says mm -hmm. or something along those lines, right? So he, but even then, you know, I guess we also don't know, are they blacking out all books or are they only blacking out books about the tower? Because in Senlin Ascends, the book that's being blacked out is that wife monger guide thing. And all pretty much all the books Senlin brings with him to give to Marat this time are books or about the tower. That's a about good the point. tower. So yeah. mm -hmm. you don't know for sure if it's all books or if it's just those, but then it's like Marat wants to destroy the tower, right? He wants to destroy mm -hmm. that. Or take over the tower, one or the other. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I would, I would, I would err on the side of destroy it, not necessarily like collapse it physically, but he wants to destroy the the lifestyle that it. Yeah, he no, wants to destroy everything it represents for sure. Yeah, he's Daenerys. He wants to break the wheel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and honestly, also in that respect. It's like, I can't necessarily disagree with them destroying the books about the tower that draw people to it with half-truths, you know, and sometimes outright lies. Mm -hmm. But, you know, also it's like, uh, it's still censorship. It's still their version of book burning, I guess. So, ugh. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the other thing. Why not just burn them? What's the point of spending all that time 
it keeps then, them busy. It gives them something to do. It's it's a it's a, like a meditative thing. I think is what I got from it. They clearly have work to do, right? But it's also they don't. I think Marat doesn't want them to have the Hads to have too much downtime, because with too much downtime, they might start thinking about life outside of this, right? At least that's that was my take on it. And I don't, that might be completely off base. I, hon I honestly don't know, but that, that was my take on it. He, he wants to systemically like destroy all this literature. If you want to call it literature, <laughs> uh, bad guidebooks is, is, is bad guidebooks and, and books about stealing people's about stealing women. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, it's like, it's like, I'm trying to think of real world examples, you know. Is it about stealing um, women or white slaving women? I guess they're one and the same. Yeah, it's it's, it's both. It's one and the same in, in that book. But I'm trying to think of real world examples, and it's like, I don't know, like blacking out like Mein Kampf or something. I don't know. But even that's not a good example. And also, I I'm of the opinion that there should always be like, these books should be kept because if you don't destroying destroying stuff like that doesn't get rid of the ideas right it just it just gets rid of the bad example of it maybe i don't know it's it's very ugh. but all that said so so marat himself he's this very eloquent um attractive you know senlin mentioned several times how you know he's he's this kind of good looking uh well-spoken man um and he's also like edith what we learned is called a wakeman mm -hmm. they're they were modified by the sphinx and in return they agree they they have a contract to help protect the tower but marat has given that up he doesn't he didn't like being party that he didn't like being in the sphinx's employ I'm using that term very loosely because it is another, it really is another form of indentured servitude. The difference being they're not walking the black trail with loads on their back, paying off a debt. They get, you know, Edith got her arm, Marat got his legs and, you know, he's in his wheelchair because he doesn't have the batteries for his legs. One thing I will say, did anybody else, uh, and, and I, I, I don't think I really thought about it the first two times I read this book, oddly enough, but this time maybe it's third time's a charm. Did anybody think anything of the, Simlin makes a couple comments about the sounds of the wheelchair and how it's like kind of musical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because the first time I was like, I thought he just meant the key, the creaks of the chair were, not, not necessarily musical, but you know, it's just this that sound was, it, it, or I don't know, it was something about the sound. And sure, he pointed it out, but then later, for sure, he mentions like the musical sound, and he knew it was Marat. And I'm like, okay, wait, so is it like a, is it an actual musical sound, or is it just the rhythmic? No, it sounded like it was like a musical series of notes that the wheelchair plays. Okay. Okay, so, and that's what I was wondering, you know, because the, again, like I said, at first it just sounds like it's the, maybe the rhythmic creaking of the wheelchair, but then later he referred, I think at least twice, he refers to it as like a musical sound. And it's like, wait a minute. So is it actually playing music? Is it actually making a sound like that? I think um, so. Sort of like, it's like Jaws. Da -da, da -da. <laughs> that's the sound of Marat. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> The fact that they flee and somehow Marat catches up to them in his wheelchair is really interesting to me because mm -hmm. no matter how they're, you know, forcing their way through the thickets of, of the weird forest, I, I, I'm still just kind of, you know, Valida, Valida comes to rescue them. Like mm -hmm. I said, you know, good, good thing. Valida finally did something, but Valida not obeying finally <laughs> made a difference. Redeems. Yeah. <laughs> in the meantime, Adam explored and found the equipment to fix the the ship to a certain degree. And a gold bar. And, and, and a, a gold bar. 
and a diary talking about the riches of the tower, you know, oh, the roof. Adam, Adam, Adam and his treasure hunter self. It's, it's, it's all, that's all very like, it's like this weird little side plot that it's like, Oh, Adam, just stop, please. Just stop. real friendships are the treasures we found along the way. <laughs> <sighs> um, but so Valida, Valida follows them and, you know, she realizes, because they realize, okay, we're not locked in this room, in the zoo, in the, the birdcage thing, but we're clearly not meant to be able to leave. And Valida recognizes that as well. And mm -hmm. she saw the whole thing where they took the gunpowder from the hot and she rigs an explosion to cause a distraction so that they can escape. I don't know how 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 did the explosion happen and the distraction happens and somehow and they flee through the woods and Edith you know even though they're like I said running through the thicket and Edith is using her arm as you know a, a sort of a battering ram in a way, uh, but still like Marat in his wheelchair catches up with them. That's interesting to me. Like it's to me, it read that there's something beyond. He there's no way he's just slowly creaking along in his wheelchair. There's there, there mm -hmm. has to be something else about that wheelchair. No, I agree. I think you're overthinking it. I think it just was a convenient plot device. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I might be wrong, but <laughs> Maybe, but we've been. I mean, there there's some weird sort of technology in this well, no, no, that's, no if he had the fuel i would say yes but without the fuel well he doesn't have the batteries for his legs that doesn't mean he doesn't have anything i don't know help him move faster i guess it doesn't matter i i i think it's just he needed to catch up with them so that there could be that last sort of standoff mm -hmm. where senlin is that where he shows him? Because he sees when they're in the zoo, this is important. He sees that Ogier has five copies of the paint of Ogier's painting. Yeah, five fakes. So he sees that there's five copies of the painting in the zoo. And it's then, right, when they when they face Marat in the that clearing when they're trying to escape, that he pulls it out and says, Ha ha, I have this. And mm -hmm. that's when Marat is like, shoot them, even though the spider eaters are right there. He yep. gets real mad. He gets real mad. He, he gets loses, real mad. He loses his shit for a second, let's be real. Yeah, he freaks out about it, for sure. Everybody is obsessed with this painting. And someone's yeah. over here just like, I got this painting. What? <laughs> I don't know. It's very, uh, that painting, I know that. I know that it's important. We all know that it's important, but it just at this point, it's still just like, why, why? It's just mm -hmm. a painting of a little girl. Yeah, at this point, it's purely a MacGuffin. Yeah, but for some reason, Marat has five copies of it and is real mad that Sendlin has another one. The I mean, the real one, really. Yes, uh, I, 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 I know that it's the real one. I don't think we've, Marat we've been told it's the real one. We, yeah. There's no proof it's the real one. For all we know, it's a fake one. That's true. Especially when there are now six of them. Or seven of them because Senlin had the other fake. Including painting. the Senlin. Yeah, the Senlin fake. So there are seven of these paintings out there. No. Um, but yeah, so, so, but it makes Marat lose his shit. And I, I mean, I'm really like, Come on, man! You're stupid. Why would you? Why would you do yeah. that? Like, just the spider eaters are right there. I, he knows they're there too. You know, yep. like he thinks he's got them cornered. Then it's like, oh wait, you have a painting? Never mind. Yep. Then there's the whole the scene where the sort of Hod army is approaching the stone cloud. And Iron and Adam are trying to hold them off, but they've only got a hit, you know a few guns, a few shots, whatever. Mm -hmm. And th that was a very interesting sort of interlude, I think, to see inside the Hod's mind. It's like, oh, he gets he gets to the boat and he looks around and he realizes, shit, I'm the only one left because Senlin <laughs> and Edith are taking them out from behind. Yeah, uh, that was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> It was it was a good it was a really good little like I said like interlude right just, mm -hmm. I don't know if we'll ever see into the Hod's minds again but yeah 
You kind of feel I, bad for that one Hod who's just like, wait, what? The, 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 you mean the last Hod, the, the one that was yeah, the last alone? one who's like, wait a second. Yeah, I mean, well, that scene sort of bothered me because they were really dumb that they, you know, all of the a sudden last all Hod dead. Standing. I mean, the, 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 none of them picked up on it except the last one. That seems a bit extreme. I mean, I think they were all just of one mind, right? And they're so used to not having any sort of, they're so used to these people not being prepared, not having, maybe not having any way to fight them. Or if they do, you know, they're so unprepared that they can't handle this sort of mini army of hods that's approaching them from the, you know, that they didn't even know was there in the first place. Mm. Uh, so I don't, yeah, I mean, it, but yeah, that, that whole interlude was really funny. Um, and I still, you know, the fact that they were able to repair the ship and, and get out of there was like, okay, all right. I went, I, you know, I, I, I'm, they had to, obviously they had to escape, mm -hmm. but you know, they all get out and, if, oh, and, and the other thing is Valita shaved her head so that she'd look like a hod, which was, Oh yeah, that was nuts. Yeah, that that was that was hilarious. Like, and now she just is gonna look like a hod for a while, maybe forever. She seems to like I'm, not having her hair. Yeah, the fact that she was just kind of like giddy about it too was pretty great. Well, I think um, uh, th this I think this is from the first half of the book. If it's not, it's not a huge spoiler. But there's there's some there's some parts where Belita is thinking about her time uh, mm -hmm. at Rodian's, you know, it, it, when she was doing her show for Rodian and everything. And she is, I mean, clearly traumatized, you know, even though she yeah. doesn't necessarily portray that often, you know, the, the, her inner thoughts where uh, she, at one point she thinks about how Rodian would come in and, uh, play with her hair or didn't it wasn't it he was he 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 was uh a voyeur let's yeah just... no but but wasn't he also playing with her hair and there was yeah there was a lot of gross there was a lot of gross there and you know how he would say things like maybe i won't sell you i'll just keep you for myself but he was mm -hmm. also also uh, he was doing real gross dirty things like in her room you know and she was sleeping and yep. stuff and uh so she I, I think that her her shaving her head and why she's so giddy about it is a it has a lot to do with that you know it's 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 like her taking off her leotard and and wearing mm -hmm. just boxy shirt and big manly gloves that she's she's hiding the things and getting rid of the things about her that were part of the yeah. identity that that caused her to be traumatized let's be real yep. so it, it's in her mind um but yeah so it, it's 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 one of those sort of empowering you know maybe she'll grow her hair back a little bit but i i the fact that she's just like well i gotta be a hot so <laughs> shaving her head tear it off no big deal yep i liked it now okay so closing out Part two is we we know for sure now why and how Edith and the Red Hand are siblings. And Marat, you know, he's given up that life as a Wakeman, you know, mm -hmm. but he's still part of that as well because he still has the legs. He can't get rid of those, I guess. Right. Uh, I mean, Oh, I mean, Edith's, Edith's arm at the end of part two is useless. So she doesn't, yeah. she doesn't, she lost all of her batteries. And then she, the last one she had in the arm was used up in the escape. So, you know, she finally, she admits to Senlin, you know, he, he asks her why she wouldn't talk about what happened to her, why she wouldn't tell him about the Sphinx. And I, I love that she says that's a big knock because earlier mm -hmm. in the book they had this system of knocks because her cabin she had to walk through his to get to her cabin so they had this stupid system of knocks that he came up with and that she kind of thought was dumb but she went along with and and i love that she was like that's a big knock tom when he at, says like why won't you tell me about these things 
but she said, you know, she says she's avoided talking about it because she didn't want him to look at her differently and she didn't want to feel less like herself than she already did. But she tells him about the whole deal with the Sphinx. Like I, yeah. I was dying. I, you know, I was going to lose my arm and probably my life. And I was brought to the Sphinx and I signed away myself in return for this, this arm. And now it's useless until or unless I can get more batteries. And, you know, and, and she thinks of the Sphinx as sort of like her own bully. Like she doesn't trust him. She doesn't like mm -hmm. him. But someone's like, I mean, we gotta do what we gotta do, man. Like, what are you gonna do? Walk around with your arm, like, like holding your dead hundred pound arm up. I, mean, I don't know how heavy this thing is, but it's clearly very heavy because when she loses the battery, she slumps up to one side. Yeah. And makes her completely off balance. So she doesn't want to go see the Sphinx, but Senlin's like, I don't think we have a choice. Right. Well, they also had a ship that was falling apart. Mm -hmm. How, mm -hmm. they, they couldn't do much with the ship. I mean, I mean, at this point, it's, between it's, Edith and the lack of a ship, that's, that may or may not fly more than another few days. That they, they don't have, have uh, much. They didn't either. have a lot of options. Yeah. But it's still, you know, Edith's over here like, I still don't know. I still don't think we should do this. I still don't like what we're doing here. Yep. So it's going to be very interesting uh, in part three when we have to assume they will go at least go to the Sphinx's lair because they don't they don't have a choice. Uh, we don't know at this point how they're going to get there. Other, yeah, I, I, the ship is airworthy enough to get them there, but uh, I, I think that Edith does tell. I think it's Edith does tell Sandlin that Billy Lee, the the pirate that was killed at the end of the last book, the one that was the original captain of the Stone Cloud, he he he's the one brought, that found her and brought her to the Sphinx, right? Yeah. So he finds people and brings them to the Sphinx. So they know enough that they think they can get and gain entrance. And that's kind of where we leave it. But I mean, like we, we talked about in our last episode when Edith is holding the red hand out and he's calling her sister. And it's like, well, clearly there's a tie between them because he's running on the same stuff that her arm is running on. Like we, we know mm -hmm. that much at least. But now we know there's a whole set of these people who have been modified, let's say, mm -hmm. by the by the Sphinx, and they're called Wake Men, and they are supposed to protect the tower. So it's it's very interesting that the Red Hand was kind of unhinged the way he was, and also like it it, it begs the question. You know, Edith, Edith was just on the stone cloud kind of being a pirate. She wasn't really doing anything for the tower. Hasn't been doing anything for the tower. So right. well, yes, she not... yes, she was. Cause they were recruiting people for the thing. But she, but she specifically says that she hasn't been called in. Yeah. Like she's waiting for him to call her, her dead in. Yeah. And that she's he dreading also plays, but he also placed her on a ship that's doing his yeah. bidding. I feel for but, but it's so, but it's not like the red hand where she's been tasked the same way. So, and it also feels, I mean, because the red hand was put in the service of the commissioner, and he's apparently just supposed to do whatever the commissioner says, whether or not it's absolutely, whether or not it seems right. So that mm -hmm. it's it's I think there's a very interesting level of like. What? How much control does the Sphinx actually have once he sends these people out to like like hires them out to these people, or has the Red Hand gone? Had the Red Hand gone rogue? Um, I, I mean, I guess apparently not because he would have he wouldn't have been receiving his batteries or whatever they are. So yeah, it's, well, it's, but he already had them. I mean, how how but, how, how how long a supply are they sent out? I think I think it was like a year. I think Edith mentions that she was. What they what she lost when her cabin was torn out and all of her vials were literally just tossed out of the ship. I, I think I think it was a year. So, you know that doesn't. It, that's not to say that 
he, the, the Sphinx can call your, your contract in and say, you got to go serve this person or do this thing at any time. But I, it's more, my question is more, why is the Sphinx in hand with the commissioner? Because the right hand was clearly doing what he was supposed to do based on what the commissioner was saying. And I don't want to get too deep in this because I don't want anything to be spoiled by people who have already read these books, me or Jonathan, but even having read them, I, I still am just, I, the red hand is a very weird, intriguing situation, I think. And I wonder how much of who he is and what he's been doing is actually what he was supposed to be doing. So I'm curious because it's too late for me because I've been ruined because I've read ahead and Tara also. Nick, what, where do you think the Sphinx's game is? I think that the tower provides everything the Sphinx needs. So the Sphinx's only function ultimately is to keep the tower going. Makes sense. And I guess at this point, the tower only serves itself, right? Mm -hmm. So the Sphinx being served by the tower is, it, uh, it's a very, it's a very uh, depressing world. The tower. <laughs> it is. The rest of the world. Are you saying you it, would not? You say you would not leave sunny California for this tower. I. I would not leave. I, I grew up in New England, man. I would not leave gross, snowy, cold New England for this tower. <laughs> uh, literally, any part of it. Some parts of this world as a whole don't seem so bad. It, it kind of makes me wonder, like, why? Why? Well, I guess. I guess it's it's. The, the guidebooks, all of the guidebooks that exist for the tower, because the Everman's Guide is the main one, but there clearly are other histories mm -hmm. and everything that exists as we learn. So, you know, it, it makes me wonder, like, how bad are these people's lives that they're pulling up their houses? Like, <laughs> they're crawling, they're crawling their houses to float over to the tower. <laughs> Well, this I mean, isn't I, a natural wonder of the world, right? Well, I think I think I think of it as more like the the wonder of of America, right? I mean, you're picking up people who, who dream of a better life, and they've heard these things about the tower. They heard these things about America, so they came to America in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. Philosophically, I think it's the same goal. The problem is the tower is not is not quite as uh, friendly as America is. Oh, America is. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that America is friendly to all immigrants is pretty. Hilarious. I didn't say I didn't say friend was friendly. I never was friendly to all immigrants, but it, it it did and still does provide opportunity that other countries don't have, as flawed as we are. Um, and there's no question if, you know, for certain groups, it's been a lot better than others, but. Yeah, I actually do think that's a good metaphor for the tower, but because America being like this land of plenty and opportunity, sure, it was true for a lot of people, but the vast majority of people came here and not so much. I mean, even, even, outside outside of outside of the first settlers like outside of the first let's say like outside of everybody that came here up until like maybe the early 1800s or so uh and even then like, we're we're yeah. we're not counting we're not gonna we're gonna set aside slavery because that wasn't their choice but the people who came here by right. choice when there was that big the huge immigrant influx into the united states into america in well, there's like, been a bunch the, of them the, well, I'm talking like the when it really first started, which was like uh, not a little bit later than very early 1800s. A again, discounting the the people who yeah. came here as colonizers, a lot of it was. I mean, we talked about indentured servitude earlier and everything. Like, it, most of it wasn't good, and you know, the, the 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 there were there were a good amount of people who made their way here for sure but the problem I, I i think the difference is that in the tower it seems that that doesn't really happen the, the families that run the tower are the families that have been running the tower 
you know, the, the, the people, uh, the, the family, that, the families that run Peltia and I can't remember the, the one that's above the silk reef that Peltia always fights with. I can't remember the name of it, but there's, there's, it's, it's not a good place to go, but there's certainly a lot of very tricksy guides that make it seem like you want to be there, but that's because the tower needs people to come there in order to continue running. They need the people on the beer, the beer me go rounds. They need people uh, stoking the fires in the parlor. They need people in the baths to create the steam. Um, they they need the hods to carry everything up and down the black trail. So, and, and people die in the tower all the time and not just hods. So it's, it's very much a, they need to draw people in right? Mm -hmm. That much is, is obvious. And in drawing them in, sometimes people are caught up in the web of the Sphinx who finds which people I, who are se severely injured and makes them into wake men to... Which I'll be honest, sounds like a better deal than being a hod. I mean... Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I just, <laughs> just about everything seems like a better deal than being a hot. No, I yeah. know, but I'm just saying, you know, for, for everything that's going on in the tower, the wake man is, much as it sounds horrible, it sounds like the best deal around once you're stuck in this web of this place. I mean, it doesn't even sound horrible, let's be real, because you're getting, you know, a really, yeah, you're getting, you're getting there. It, well, it, it, it's steam powered. Bionics. I, I don't know if there's a term for that at all, but you're, you're you're getting something that is worthwhile, and and you're able to still maybe not live totally your own life, but you're you're still your own person, able to kind of make a difference. I guess whether or not it's a good one, that's a question because Edith, like we only know Edith and the Red Hand and Marat. Marat chose to give up the the power that he had as a wakeman because he didn't like the contract that he signed into uh edith has is at the at this point in time useless in her mind because her arm is useless i mean and and really mm -hmm. like honestly that's gotta be uncomfortable as hell too not gonna lie mm -hmm. just this this dead weight of of uh you know like think about it if your arm is asleep forever but also weighs a hundred pounds that's yeah. horrifying. <laughs> so, and then you've got the red hand who God only knows what the hell is going on with that guy. Uh, I got news to you. Even not weighing a hundred pounds, if all your arm could do is be at your side and just take weight on your shoulder without having any sort of, it would probably be pretty miserable. Yeah. But on that note, I don't want to spoil anything for part three. So I think we should close it out. On Wednesday, February 16th, we'll be back to cover the second half, aka part three, of Arm of the Sphinx. So much happens, and uh, this book is really good. The series is really good. Cannot wait to discuss the second half of this book. Once again, I'm Tara, along with Nick and Jonathan. Thank you for joining us for Sagas and Sass, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.